This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Virginia Postrel about the power of glamorous objects and glamorous people. Glamour takes us out of our everyday, ordinary lives and into something that reaches toward the ideal. Here's Debbie Millman. Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton had it. Barack Obama, George Clooney, and Jennifer Lawrence have it. The latest Apple products have it, too. We know it when we see it, but glamour is hard to define. Just what do these people and products have? Is it good looks? Is it power? Style? All of the above? Here to enlighten us is Virginia Postrel, whose latest book is The Power of Glamour, Longing, and the Art of Visual Persuasion. Virginia Postrel is a columnist for Bloomberg View and the author of the groundbreaking bestsellers The Substance of Style and The Future and Its Enemies. She also teaches a special seminar on glamour right here in the Master's in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, where she joins me now. Virginia, welcome to Design Matters. It's great to be with you. So let's get right into it. You yourself state in The Power of Glamour, as someone attracted to the nitty-gritty details of commerce and culture, I never expected to write a book on glamour, despite what you might infer from its title, the substance of style was about the rise of aesthetic value in such previously unstylish realms as toilet brushes and business hotel rooms. It had nothing to do with glamour. So, Virginia, why a book on glamour? Why a book on glamour? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, in 2004, the uh, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art had an exhibit on glamour in industrial design, fashion, and architecture. And the curator asked me if I would write the introductory essay for the catalog. And I actually knew nothing about glamour. But I was at a particularly confident period in my life. And Why? I said, Why? sure. Why? Why were you I so think confident? Because, I think because the substance of style made me confident. I felt good about that book. So I ended up writing an essay on glamour and uh, subsequently giving a TED Talk on glamour. And this was all long ago in 2004. And I did not intend to write a book on glamour. I actually thought my next book would sort of be a business book about if you want to do the aesthetic imperative, uh, the aesthetic imperative, which is what The Substance of Style was about. But I kept coming back to the topic of glamour because I was fascinated by it. And eventually I decided to do a book. You talked just briefly about the aesthetic imperative I spoke with you at length about this when your book first came out 10 years ago. Actually, it was about two years after your book had come out, but you were one of the very first guests that I had on Design Matters when I started the show in 2005. Um, So for those listeners that might not have gone all the way back into the archives or remember our conversation back then if they were listening, can you just talk briefly about the aesthetic imperative? And then I want to sort of segue back into the difference between style and glamour. So the idea of the aesthetic imperative was that in many, many aspects of life, particularly in business, the look and feel of people, places, and things, in particular 
places and things was becoming more and more important as a value driver because how would you differentiate? Function had gotten so good in so many uh, realms of life, whether you're thinking about consumer electronics or design or you're even thinking about something like hotel rooms. In that book, the really interesting example to me was Starbucks because in a very short time, Starbucks had gone from really a cutting-edge new idea that you would have a mass market chain, you know, one on every corner where you had that level of attention to the look and feel of the surroundings, as well as the idea that they were selling a premium sensory product, coffee. It had gone from being a new idea to being kind of a ho-hum old idea in a very short period of time, maybe five years, to being the bare minimum. If you're going to start a new place, it had better be at least as good as Starbucks. Starbucks wasn't exciting anymore, but it had set a new standard. And that sort of thing was happening in many, many, many fields. Uh, The idea that it was an imperative that businesses that in the past might have been able to get away with thinking just about having good function, whether that's technical function or service, had to think about the aesthetics as well, the sensory qualities of whatever they were selling, and particularly the look and feel. My favorite parts of the substance of style were actually some of the more unexpected types of accessories and pieces of our lives that had become elevated to an experience, particularly Michael Graves' toilet brush and Philippe Stark's fly swatter, right, which right. I believe which, was... I think they put the fly swatter on the cover of the paperback. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's sort of astonishing to me to imagine that you could sell a fly swatter for about 20 bucks. Right. When, right. when they used to be, you know, 29 cents in a hardware store and you can pick from any number of colors. Right, right. Plastic. And I had a whole famous paragraph about toilet brushes. It wasn't just Michael Graves' toilet brush. It right. Was, there was this whole explosion of, first of all, people figured out that you could put a toilet brush in a containers instead of just throwing it under the sink in your bathroom in a really gross way. And that was an upgrade in and of itself. And then people started to play with those cases. When Michael Graves died, I wrote a short piece for Bloomberg View about how different what Target did with his line was than, for example, what they just did with Lily Pulitzer, which sold out and got a lot of attention. Because when Michael Graves designed all these things for Target, first of all, even among the cognoscenti, he was not a big deal anymore. He was kind of a faded star. But more importantly, the typical Target shopper had never heard of Michael Graves. This was not a celebrity designer appeal. This was not, oh, you can't afford an Alessi teapot. You can buy one at Target. This was, this thing is so compelling that when you see it on the shelf, just by the way it looks, you're going to want to buy it rather than save $10. And they did that with the whole line of Michael Graves products. And it turned out to be super, super successful. And again, it was not a celebrity sell. It was not Martha Stewart at Kmart. It was this guy who design people knew about, but the target choppers did not know about him. And it's interesting, you're right, because he was a little bit under the radar at that point in terms of being of the moment. Right. In fact, the original deal that he did with Target, I believe, 
was something that people, it, the cognoscenti, as you said, um, looked down upon. That right. he, had, he had really sold out. In fact, it reinvigorated his career and took him to entirely new heights, right. which I'm so glad happened for him. And then became a model for a lot of other people. And now they've moved more into fashion. But as you mentioned, Philippe Stark did a line for them. And that was an interesting thing because it was like the opposite. The Philippe Stark line was very much for people who knew who Philippe Stark was right. uh, when when they did. I don't know that the Flyswatter was a target one. That might have been his main. Well, the interesting but, but, thing about the Flyswatter, because of course I had to succumb and got one, was that you could actually stand it up yeah. as if it were a piece of art, right. an object right. of art, right. where right. it was almost like a sculpture. Right. I always stand. thought of it as if it was like a little hand, sort right. of. Uh, yeah. So it was meant to be displayed. Right. It was meant to be shown with pride. Right. right. And on the issue of display, one of the things that came out, it was after the book came out, but that I used to use it as an example, was Crest came out with this new kind of mouthwash, and they did the bottle design, not as an afterthought, but all along when they were creating the brand. And it was this very faceted, interesting bottle. And I remember seeing it on the shelf in maybe 2005, 2006 and going, holy cow, that's the aesthetic imperative right there. And later talking to somebody at the company who said that part of what they were going for was that it should be the sort of thing that you felt good about if it was on your bathroom counter. Oh, and Absolutely. I, you know, I worked at that that same exact time. I worked for another consumer products company, and I was working with them to design a new bottle for their shampoo. Mm -hmm. And the creative brief had one line in it from the CEO of the company, and it was, make it so beautiful, somebody will want to put a flower in it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that. And I think it's very interesting. Now we sit in 2015, and we kind of take all this for granted. I, I suspect that a lot of the branding students here They've never thought about this because it's not a change. They've just grown up it's with this. It's Absolutely. been the way life is. So let's talk about the difference between style and glamour. Yeah. And then let's talk more about your book. Right. Your new book. Right. Your right. latest book. Right. <laughs> so style is – I mean there are many definitions of style. What I was writing about in the substance of style was what I called aesthetics, which is not the philosophy of art but in this context, but is just the look and feel of things, their sensory content. Glamour is different. Glamour is more of an imaginative process. It's a form of visual rhetoric or communication. And my light bulb moment when I was working on what became The Power of Glamour was when I realized that glamour was like humor. How do we know that something is funny? We know it by the way the audience reacts. The audience finds it amusing. And the same thing with glamour. How do we know something is glamorous? It's not because it has XYZ characteristics. It's not because of the way it's designed necessarily. It's because of the way the audience responds. The audience feels this pang of projection and longing. If only, if only life could be like that, if only I could be like that, if only I could be there. Okay, what creates that and what do you find in all forms of glamour? I came up with three elements. The first is a promise of escape and transformation. Glamour takes us out of our everyday, ordinary lives and into something that reaches toward the ideal. And the second is grace. Glamour hides things. It hides distractions, flaws, effort. We often use the term effortless in association with glamour, anything that could break the spell. And the third is mystery, and mystery helps with the grace by hiding things, and it also makes it more intriguing, and that 
encourages projection. It's really an understanding of glamour as an emotional communicative process, a form of, of visual rhetoric or visual persuasion. And the visual isn't necessarily literally an image, although it often is. It could be sort of a word picture, but it's less just describing things in a simple way. It's not cognitive. It's emotional. And do you think that style is cognitive as well? Well, I think style can often be described cognitively. Like I, you can describe a particular kind of style. But, you know, style is also sensory. I mean, it's also about the visual or the oral or the, you know, it's, a, it's something that appeals to our senses as well. So we're, we're in both cases, we're dealing with things that appeal to our senses. But glamour is about a very specific emotional response. Style can have all kinds of responses. And the two I use in the substance of style is, you know, I like that, just pleasure, and I'm like that. This meaning, this is something I use to identify myself. So if, if I had to continue the equation of I like that or I want to be like that, right, right. then glamour is I wish I were like right, that. Right, right. So if style is I like that and I am like that, Glamour is, I wish I were like that, or I wish life were like that. Yeah, you got it right. Yeah, I didn't right, get it right. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so. So at the very beginning of the book, you quote fashion critic Robin Givhan, who states, Glamour makes us feel good about ourselves by making us believe that life can sparkle. Yeah. How, how does glamour do that? Well, what it does is it shows us a version of life. It could be a beautiful vacation picture. It could be a presidential candidate. I was talking about a Barack Obama. It could be a beautiful dress. It shows us something that represents life as we want it to be. And so in that sense, it's very particular. Something could be glamorous to me that's not glamorous to you because what we want is different. But whatever it is, there's an intensification and a taking away of the distracting and the mundane and elevating whatever it is. So it's, it's, it's simultaneously less bad than real life and better than real life. So that can be everything from you're styling a living room for an interiors magazine shoot. You arrange the furniture in a beautiful way that's evocative and encourages people to imagine that they would be sitting there with their friends or their loved ones. But then you also do things like you you put a fire in the fireplace because that's more interesting and, and creates a certain emotional charge. And then you hide all the lamp cords because they are distracting and they, they mar the scene. You make it better. You intensify. You make it better than life. So it seems as if there's an implicit type of projection the glamour is created in viewing something that you aren't and view as a certain way. Does that make sense? Right. Well, so, yes. So I think what you're getting at is something that's really important, which is that glamour depends on the audience. Right. And again, going back to the humor analogy, you know, there are in Hollywood lots of people who are in the business of trying to create humor there, you know, and, and in New York as well. You know, people writing jokes, people who are comedians, they have a theory of what's funny and they write the stuff. But how do you know if it's really funny or not? You have to put it in front of an audience and see if the audience responds. And the same thing is true with glamour. I, I've, you know, I've now created some 
suggestions for what people might want to do if they're a branding student or, you know, a brand agency, and they think that this is a brand for which glamour would be an appropriate form of, of persuasion, you know, you need to have a sense of escape and transformation. You need to have grace. You need to have mystery. And you can do all those things, but is it going to work? And that's going to depend on your audience. You're going to have to test it because it's not something that the object owns. It's something that's created between the audience and the person, place, or thing, or idea that is glamorous. What's interesting, though, is that the response to humor is very much a cultural universal. We all laugh when right. we find something to right. be funny. Right. Yet, what we find to be funny might be different culturally right. from place to place. The same thing, I think, with glamour. Right, right. There's a very specific type of response that is elicited and that what is being elicited might be different, but the response is always right, the same. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely something that I would say. I mean, I cannot prove that glamour is universal, but I think that's exactly what it is. I think it is something universal, but that specific types are not necessarily universal. And I also think that some types are more universal than others. And that's probably true of humor as well. Certain kinds of slapstick humor travel better than, say, witty wordplay. Glamour, where it's people's desire to be beautiful or to be rich or to be sexy, you know, these sort of universal things are much more universal than, say, you know, somebody's desire for the intellectual life or, you know, one person likes the idea of the city and the other of being on a mountaintop by themselves. And that's very personality bound. And of course, there are things that are also very culturally bound. So you've got culture, time and place, and then you've got individual variations of what people want and then also what things embody their wants. So we might all have a desire to be feel special. But what would the picture that would represent feeling special to one person wouldn't necessarily have the same resonance to another. So it's not, you know, for some people, it's the red carpet. For other people, it's the U.S. Marines. And those are very different, but they appeal to the same underlying longing. Well, that makes a lot of sense in regard to the way that you've organized the book in icons, in chapters with icons, and the notion of the princess. In the book, there are several different, many different icons that you describe. I want to talk about a couple of them, um, but the princess is one uh, that I absolutely want to talk about. So I'm going to read a passage from the book about the princess icon. It's a truism. Every little girl dreams of being a princess. A Google search for that exact phrase turns up more than 821,000 instances. The power of the archetype predates Disney's marketing machine and will no doubt outlive it because to play princess is to embrace two eternally alluring promises. You are special and life can be wonderful. Those promises are Princess Glamour's stable emotional core. But what exactly they mean changes with audience and circumstances. That blew my mind, that paragraph. (laughs) Um, How do they change with audiences and circumstances? That's my first question. And my second question is, do you really believe that the idea of the princess archetype will indeed outlive Disney? Well, who knows how long Disney will last, but I think it's possible. The fact that we have the princess archetype in, you know, a non-aristocratic democratic republic and it's this powerful in the United States where no one literally dreams of being a princess in the sense that 
they don't want to grow up and marry the prince and be royalty. Really? Are and, you sure? Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. No I, have, one. I have a four-year-old niece I, that does. <laughs> well, well, but she doesn't really no, realize. She it's, doesn't. it's not. It's not like Diana Spencer thinking it would be cool to you know marry royalty. And, no, um, she just wants to be Elsa. Right. Exactly. She wants to be these fictional princesses. So if you go back and you look at fairy tales and you look at what was the idea of being a princess? The idea was you were living in extreme poverty in very difficult circumstances. And the idea of being a princess, that is being royal and being rich, was an escape from hardship and sort of being lifted out of poverty into privilege. And then even in the 19th century, you have books like A Little Princess. You have these notions that it's very much about somehow being elevated out of ordinary, very difficult circumstances into special, very wonderful circumstances. So now we have this idea of princesses, and it is your four-year-old niece. I mean, you know, first of all, it is not generally an archetype for adults or even teenagers. It's an archetype for preschoolers. It's very similar to the superhero archetype, which is actually an archetype that has more staying power in terms of age than the princess one. And in fact, there are lots of little girls nowadays who go from a princess stage at, say, age four to a superhero stage at age five or six. Absolutely. Um, So now it's about being special. It's somehow that if I were a princess, I would be special and life would be beautiful and I would get to wear the pretty dresses. And it's that sort of thing. And that's what is special to a preschool is you know, they're not really worried about, like, where's their next meal coming from? It's not It's not the world in which Cinderella developed originally or some story like that developed originally. It's a very different world, but it is still that same core um, emotional idea, which is that you will be elevated out of your ordinary life into something, like, really special and glittery. <laughs> well, it's interesting, though, because I think that certainly – Anna, maybe even Elsa, I wouldn't call them glamorous. I would actually think, especially Anna, is much more of a tomboy. Actually, the idea of a tomboy, that term that we use, which is a very 19th century term, is a glamorous term. It's like an anti-glamour form of glamour. I hadn't thought about it. I don't write about it in the book. But if you think about Joe March, who's sort of the quintessential tomboy figure in literature. And I was not really a tomboy in the sense that I was not physically terribly active. I'm not very athletic. wasn't when I was a kid. Not, And yet I really liked that character and, and identified with those kind of tomboy characters from the, in those earlier novels. And I think that's a kind of independent woman sort of it's a physical manifestation of a kind of spirit. And in their literary forms, and they are, or, or their artistic forms, there is a kind of glamour to it. It's a different, it's it's appealing to a different sort of thing. And so if you could figure out how to have a tomboy princess. <laughs> Angelina that, Jolie. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Well, Angelina Jolie is the perfect thing yeah. because she is an action heroine. I mean, she's really made a lot of her career playing these very physical action heroes or heroines who are also, you know, red carpet beautiful. And then 
she's got the whole maternal thing going on there, too. Again, it's for the audience. You know, I think we've reduced the notion of glamour to this idea of being beautiful or having to do with fashion. And I think those things can be intensely glamorous. And, you know, I always talk about how, you know, we see these runway fashions of clothes that no one it, no one can fit in and no one has any occasion to wear unless they're, you know, very few people. And yet they, Angelina Jolie. Right, they take us out, <laughs> but they take us out of the everyday exactly, and that's yeah. a lot of their appeal. But I think there are other kinds of glamour. You know, it's very much about who you wish you were and what sort of world you wish you lived in. But always with that sense of mystery and, and the difficulties being taken out uh, somewhat. Another one of the icons that you talk about in the book is the aviator. And you write about the aviator. From the days of biplanes and silk scarves, the aviator has been the archetype of masculine glamour, combining youth, daring, grace, bravery, technical mastery, sexual allure, and forward-looking modernity. Even the practical costume of flight suit, helmet, goggles, or that touch tone of glamour, sunglasses, seems calculated to heighten aviators' glamour, holding viewers at an intriguing distance. And of course, I think of Leonardo DiCaprio in The Aviator. That poster symbolizes everything about this icon. So talk a little bit about the icon of The Aviator and why it's so important. So first of all, just to give listeners an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about icons, I have chapters that are either sort of developing theory or they're telling historical stories. And then at the end of each chapter, I have two icons, which are two or three pages long, that go depth on one specific glamorous thing. So it's not a glamorous person like Jackie Kennedy or Grace Kelly or or George Clooney. It's a glamorous archetype. The aviator is a great example of a type, a masculine archetype that represented modernity. And there's a lot of association of modernity and glamour. It's something I talk about later in the book. And then, of course, there are famous aviatrices, the aviatrix, uh, which is one of those words where we still have this peculiar feminine version, but Amelia Earhart being the most famous one, um, partly because she just had really great PR. But also, I I read in in your book that um, early photos showed that she was really stylized yeah. to look like Charles yes, Lindbergh. They, it was a branding campaign. There was no question about it. Her husband did this branding campaign to make her the world's most famous female aviator. And she was styled to look like Lindbergh. They were, they were sort of the same ethnic type and a little bit, you know, same body type, Midwestern look. But the way she was dressed and the way she was photographed very early on made people think of Charles Lindbergh. And he was the biggest celebrity in the world at that time. He was the guy that everybody wanted to be. So then she created this sort of female version of it. And as I say, she was not the best female aviator. She wasn't even the prettiest, <laughs> but, but she was the one with she the, was best, the best branding. She had the best branding. <laughs> and and her death in 1937 certainly helps add yeah, to her Yeah, and so that mystique. made her more mystery, mystery and added to the mystique, yeah. What is the etymology of the word glamour? Doesn't it have something to do with a magic spell? Yes, this is very important. Um, glamour origin- was a Scottish word. It was not French. A lot of people think it was a French word. Because of Sc- you? Yeah, right. It was a Scottish word that meant a literal magic spell. It was a kind of spell that you cast on people to make them see things that weren't there. And particularly the idea of seeing making things look better than they actually were. And so... 
in the late 18th, early 19th century, it, it moved from Scottish, which was a separate language, into English. But it, when it moved, it, it came as meaning a literal magic spell. And over the course of the 19th century, it became more and more metaphorical. So it went from being you cast a glamour on somebody to the glamour of battle uh, and sort of ideas that are closer to the way we use it today. But it always contains that sense of magic and illusion. The last thing I want to talk to you about is the difference between charisma mm. and glamour. Charisma is a personal characteristic like intelligence you write. Is glamour something different than that? Yes. Charisma is something that people carry around with them like uh, it's a personal characteristic like intelligence. It belongs to the charismatic person. And this is important in two ways. First of all, it's only people. Only people or arguably dogs and cats, but you know, <laughs> but but like cities can't be charismatic, cars can't be charismatic, you know, iPhones can't be charismatic. All these things can be glamorous, but they can't be charismatic. Charismatic is a personal quality. The other thing is the audience responds to charisma, but the audience doesn't have much control over it. It's a force. A charismatic person draws people to them and it and I have had the experience of being in an audience of a very charismatic speaker with whom I really, really disagreed. And I could feel his charisma, and it was very scary, actually. You know, I didn't feel drawn to him, but I felt the other people being drawn to him. It's, it's very frightening. Whereas if something's not glamorous to you, it's just not glamorous to you. You don't just don't respond to it. Charismatic people do not need to be mysterious, and they often are not. I mean, Bill Clinton, famously charismatic, not at all mysterious. First of all, we know way too much about Bill Clinton for him ever to be glamorous. But but even, even before the scandals and everything, he just is not a person who presents as a mysterious character. He just, you know, he's just out there. But I don't think of him as particularly glamorous. No, no, and he's not glamorous at all. He or he's. He's not glamorous. He's not somebody. He's somebody, but he's somebody who's highly charismatic. And if you look at uh, Barack Obama in two, and I always say Barack Obama in two thousand eight because I think being president is the sort of experience when you actually get in office and you have to govern, you have to make decisions and pick this and not pick that. It's hard to maintain glamour. So he's, you know, he's somewhat charismatic. You don't get to be president of the United States unless you're somewhat charismatic. But what his really had going for him in 2008 was this glamour because his supporters projected onto him everything that they wanted in a president in a world and, you know, in, in the country. And even some of the iconography was sort of glamorous, whether it was the, the famous poster of him or the, the logo with the road stretching to the horizon. Again, mystery. And he always has that mystery and reserve, and even even as president, has more of that than than many presidents. And the other thing about the difference is that when somebody dies, if they were charismatic, their charisma dies with them. The charisma is something it's best felt actually in person. It can be carried in a video recording, and so now that we have more video recordings, we may still be able to experience some of the charisma of, I don't know, uh, um, of a singer. Marilyn Monroe? Or... Uh, well, I was thinking more. It's, it's actually more like a rock star quality than, oh, than okay. you know, um, Janis Joplin, somebody like that, very charismatic, not 
not particularly glamorous, but still it's not the same as the live interaction. And so the example I use in the book is I talk about Princess Diana because there's a very interesting arc. When she started out and nobody knew anything about her and she was shy die with her little looking down and looking up look, she was glamorous. It was the it was the princess glamour. It was a version of that. It was the idea, you know. And then she became better known and there were scandals, but she turned out to be a highly charismatic person that really related to people. And so she had this kind of other kind of creating love in in the audience. And then when she died, she sort of became glamorous again. You know, people stopped thinking about so much the scandals as her good works, and she became representative. And another person I talk about is Joan of Arc in, in a similar way. So charisma is something that the audience doesn't determine the meaning of it. It's a quality of leadership. Somebody who's charismatic sort of enlists you. Once you want to please them, you want to enlist in their cause. Whereas somebody who's glamorous, you imagine that they share your cause. <laughs> you get the, the the difference. And the crucial thing is this difference of mystery. Uh, I think that charismatic people tend to make you feel good about yourself, and glamorous people make you feel bad about yourself. <laughs> Oh, that's sad. I don't know whether glamour – it sort of depends on how you think about glamour. I mean it is true that glamour works because you're discontent with something. Right. That was what I would say. Right. Glamour, what it does is it takes our discontents, which we may not have articulated to ourselves, whatever it is, and it focuses them on an object, which doesn't necessarily mean it's literally an object. It could be a person. It could be an idea. And so we sort of think, oh, if only I had that. Right. So it's sort of wistful. Yeah. So there's a wistful, there's a sort of bittersweet quality to it. And yet it's very pleasurable at the same time. It can be. So it's this is interesting. You can fantasize. I like to fantasize that I'm glamorous, but I know that I'm not. (laughs) Well, you know, I don't think anyone is glamorous to themselves. Because you know yourself, you know your weaknesses, you know your shortcomings, you know how life has disappointed you, all of those sorts of things you know. And I'm sure you could pick whoever was the most glamorous person on the planet that you could think of, and they would not be glamorous to themselves. I bet you there are people listening to this podcast who find the idea of Debbie Millman incredibly glamorous. Oh, uh, you know, And not necessarily because of your appearance, but because look at this great life you have and look at this interesting work. And I love to listen to her podcast. And she's, you know, I wish I had that kind of ability to you know, talk to those people and ask those questions and read those books and do this great design. I mean, I... I say this because I am the world's least glamorous person myself, and yet I know there are people who find me glamorous. Absolutely. I think <laughs> so you're I'm sure that there are people divine. who find, find you glamorous as well. <laughs> Virginia, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Always a pleasure. To find out more about Virginia Postrel and her wonderful book, you can read The Power of Glamour, Longing, and the Art of Visual Persuasion, or you can go to her blog, thepostrel.com. That's V-P-O-S-T-R-E-L dot com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortega. 
The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. <laughs>